0: Well, good morning, Four Corners. What a blessing to gather today again to worship the Lord. And as we see our our children going out there to know that they are being taught the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they're being taught the only hope in life and death, that they are being taught that there is hope in this life that transcends just the material, that they are being told that they are not... uh, Evolved apes, but rather human beings made in the image of God. That they are loved by God and that through Christ they can be with Him forever. And that's what we're doing as well. So we never outgrow those things. We're thankful to the Lord that we can gather and sing these praises to God. Focus our minds on Christ. And and really, when we sing these hymns here gathered together... We are meditating. It's, it, singing is a beautiful thing in how it sounds, but it's also a beautiful thing in what it allows us to do. As we go through these words very slowly, we are forced to, to consider every word as like a drop of honey. And so meditating our way through these songs. I know it's tempting for us as we go through these songs each week to check out mentally. We can sing the words And not be thinking at all about what they mean. I think we're all guilty of that. But our hope and prayer is that we will truly meditate when we gather like this and sing these songs. If you would go ahead and go with me to Genesis chapter 33. Trey was correct. We are there today and we, yes, have been in Genesis for a long time. We are continuing our series through Genesis. I will remind you all that I think we were in John for about two years. So... John's only 21 chapters, so we got a little bit more to cover here, but we are, yes, quite a ways in, and I anticipate uh, our time in the Joseph narrative. One of my favorite passages, as I've said before, uh, one of my favorite passages or chunks of Scripture in all of the Bible is the story of Joseph in Egypt, and so we're getting closer and closer, only a few chapters away from that, but we are now still working our way through the life of Jacob, the patriarch. One of the things I've said many times is that when we come to the book of Genesis, we really are looking at the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the focus of this entire book, establishing the covenant relationship between God and his people as he demonstrates his faithfulness and keeps his promises to these three patriarchs. Just to center us on Christ as we're going through and to piggyback off of what Trey was saying, there are two big picture ideas that I hope have captured you about Christ as we've gone through Genesis up to this point. And the first of those is, as Trey mentioned, Genesis 3.15, where the Lord makes a promise that he, through the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. And so before the serpent enters the scene, before Adam and Eve sin, we have a perfect world. A world of perfect relationship and fellowship with God, between humans and with nature. And all of that is ruptured and broken at the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And what the Lord promises the humans is that he will send a descendant, a seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent and restore All things. And so we know as we open up the rest of the Bible, as we continue going through the remainder of Scripture, we know we're looking for this individual. But then we come to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Isaac and Jacob. And this is the second big picture Christ pointer in the book of Genesis. And that is a promise that the Lord makes to the patriarchs where he says, in your seed in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a repetition of what we find in Genesis 3. So now we know that there will be one individual who will come from the human race who will undo the fall and defeat Satan. And there will be one individual who will come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who will bring blessedness to the world. And so we find ourselves in the middle of this incredible story here in chapter 33. And what we find in this passage as we come to Genesis 33 is that two major elements of Jacob's story flow together into a a climactic scene. So Genesis 33 is a climax of sorts. It's not the climax of Jacob's life. It's not the climax of this section of the book, this larger section of the book, but it is a climax nonetheless. And we get, as we come to this climactic chapter, this climactic scene, we really have two rivers that are flowing into it. So briefly, by way of introduction, I want to mention each of those. The first element has to do with Jacob's brother, Esau. Let me take you back a few chapters to chapter 27. If you'll just quickly flip over in your Bible to chapter 27, verse 41. This is the first stream or river that is flowing into the passage we're looking at today. Chapter 27, verse 41. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So, the first stream or river that is flowing into what we're going to look at today, this pool, this chapter, is the hatred of a brother from 20 years before. You'll remember that Jacob deceived his father. He pretended to be his brother. He went into the room and he received the blessing from his father. Of course, this was all according to God's providence, although Jacob was responsible for his deceitful act. He takes the blessing from his father and Esau is left with no blessing. And we know that at the end of that account, that Esau's anger burns against his brother and he wants to kill his brother. Well, their mother who loves Jacob more than Esau, the father loved Esau more, a really messed up family. We're seeing a lot of those in Genesis. But the mother of Jacob says to Jacob, "You need to get away because your brother's going to kill you." And so she slyly goes to her husband Isaac and has him send Jacob off to find a wife at his distant relative Laban. This is the brother of Jacob's mother. Rebecca. So, at the instigation of his protective mother, Jacob leaves, and for the last 20 years of his life, he has been living away from his family, his immediate family, with his uncle Laban in Mesopotamia. But now Jacob is returning, and he must face his brother. The brother who 20 years before, when he last saw him, when he last heard from him, he understood that this brother wanted to kill him, was waiting to murder him, like Cain and Abel. So now Jacob must face this potentially hostile brother. And to make matters worse, when Jacob sends messengers to Esau, they return with this message, chapter 32, verse 6 we came to your brother esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him this is incredible i mean jacob sins he's been it's been 20 years he doesn't know what's in Esau's heart, what's in Esau's mind, he sends some messengers forward, gives quite a a friendly greeting, and the messengers come back, and they don't say, Esau said, great, I can't wait to see Jacob, Uh, I'm really happy to see him, but he's coming with 400 men. No, it's silence, and he's coming with 400 men. Jacob, of course, at that point, falls apart, and we have read through his response to that. But what I want you to see at this point is that today, as Jacob meets Esau, this element of his story reaches a climax. Jacob, in this passage we're going to look at today, chapter 33, will be reconciled to his brother Esau. So that's the first river of of sort of history or a narrative context that flows into what we're going to look at today. Here's the second. The second element that reaches a climactic point in this chapter has to do with Jacob's relationship to the Lord. Just as it has been 20 years since he has seen Esau, it has also been 20 years since the Lord first spoke to him. And this is what God said to him. Look at chapter 28, verse 15. So Jacob has left He's on his way to his uncle in Mesopotamia. He's all alone, middle of nowhere. He's fleeing his brother's hostility. The Lord comes to him, appears to him, makes promises to him. And he says this at the end of that account. twenty-eight, fifteen. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And what we've seen over the last five chapters is that God has done exactly what he said. Over the last five chapters, we have been witnessing God's watchful care over Jacob. And we've seen this come in phases. God has given him a family with many offspring. God has prospered him. God has protected him from Laban. Remember, his uncle mistreated him. I won't go into all of those details. You can go back and read that. But his uncle mistreated him in manifold ways. And God watched over him, protected him. He fled. Laban chased after him. And God appeared to Laban and said, Do nothing to Jacob. Say nothing. To Jacob, either good or bad. So God has watched over him, and, and today we reach a climactic point in God's dealings with Jacob. The Lord protects him from his greatest threat, protects him from his brother, and brings him safe and sound into the land of promise. So that's what we're going to look at today. These are the two elements flowing together into a climax, into this passage. One, the reconciliation with his brother, and two, the watchful care and protection of the Lord over his life. That's kind of a summary of what we've seen so far leading into the passage for today. But I want to stop for a moment and just give a little bit of an implication here for us as we see this unfold, and it's this. A text like this, situated in a context like this, reminds us that we may have to wait a long time for resolution in our lives. There are all sorts of things that we want to be right, all sorts of possibilities out there, sort of dark clouds. We may not be underneath that dark cloud now, but we see it coming. All kinds of things in our lives, maybe in relationships or in our health, other aspects of life under the big umbrella Of reality, where we want resolution now. Jacob has had to live for 20 years with this over his head, hanging over his head, and now, 20 years later, only 20 years later, does he get the kind of resolution that he is seeking. And that reminds us that the Lord does not work in accordance with our frail, fallible, finite expectations. God does not work in accordance with our timing. He does not do for us what we want, when we want. He works with us as a father, as a wise father who does all things for his glory and our ultimate good, which we may not even have a concept of at any given time time. So the title for the sermon this morning is Safe and Sound, and if you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read this entire chapter, chapter 33, verses 1 to 20. This is God's Word. It is perfect and profitable for His people. And by the way, The word is the means by which converts are made. The word goes out. The Holy Spirit takes that word and converts the sinner's heart, turns on the light, and saves. So here we are, Genesis 33, the word of the Lord. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front Then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please, please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. And I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, He bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we go through this passage, this climactic passage, and let's pray that the Holy Spirit would do what he does when the word of God goes out. Pray with me if you would. Father, we are... Blessed to be here this morning. We are blessed to be able to sing these praises to you, God, and to do it together as a local church. Father, we are blessed to be able from the heart in faith to call upon the name of the Lord and to know that you are indeed our God and that you do hear us. Father, we are blessed this morning to come and to sit under your word as it is taught. And Father, to to hear you speak. As Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And we thank you, Jesus, that you speak through your holy word as you tell us, Lord, that What it means to abide in you is to abide in your word. And as you tell us that when we build our lives on the rock and not on sand, it is to listen to your word and to do it. And as you prayed, Jesus, to your Father, as we have recorded in John 17, you said, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. And so, Father, we come before you this morning grateful that you call us to yourself by your word. And, Lord, we ask that this morning that you would show us our need for your grace, that you would show us our sin, show us our self-sufficiency, show us your strength, show us the hope that we have in Christ. Father, show us your Glory! We see your glory on every page of the Bible. We have seen your glory in genealogies and descriptions of building the ark. We've seen your glory in the most unexpected places. And Father, we come now to another passage of your holy word. And we ask that you would show your glory. That we would bow to you. That we would submit to you and follow you. And that we would trust you. We would walk with you. Lord, all the days of our lives, and that we would be ready to live for you and ready to die for you, if need be. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time. Would you do your work among us? In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to look at, this morning, three movements of this story, three movements of this chapter, this narrative. And you can see those in your bulletin. So they are these. First, the greeting. Second, the giving, and third, the going. Each of these chunks focuses on this one thing. First, you have the greeting between the two brothers. Then you have the question of the gift that preceded this encounter. And then finally, you have the departing of the two. They go out their separate ways. So the greeting, the giving, and the going. So let's look first at the greeting. And I want to highlight verses 1 to 7. So let's read those again with uh, lots of focus here, if you would. Verse 33, I mean, chapter 33, verses 1 to 7. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother." But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. There really is a dramatic start to this scene, to the scene in these seven verses. Jacob looks up to see Esau and his 400 men approaching. I mean, before it was just a message from messengers. There's Esau and 400 men coming with him. Now Jacob looks up and he sees this small militia force coming in his direction. He divides his family putting his favorite wife, Rachel, in the back with her son, Joseph. And you can go back and look at how in the world it is if you're visiting with us today and, and you're thinking, hold on, his favorite wife, he has more than one? Yes, he has, he has two and two uh, what would be considered wives, servants, concubines, whatever you would want to call them. He's got essentially four wives, these two servants of wives. And then he have, has Rachel and Leah. Here we see the human frailty of polygamy. And you can go back and look at how that occurred. But he divides his family up. He puts his favorite wife, Rachel, with her son, Joseph, in the back. And then he moves ahead of his family, bowing down in this prostrate form, seven Now, the reason he does it seven times is because, as we know throughout the Bible, the number seven is a number of perfection. It's a number of completeness or fullness. So he's essentially saying sort of of full prostration here, Esau. Full laying myself low. What's ironic about this is that Isaac told his son, when he blessed him, told Jacob that his brother would bow down to him. But here we have Jacob bowing down seven times before Esau as he approaches him. Of course, we know from last week that Jacob is limping as he moves towards Esau, as he went limping away from last week's narrative that we read. He's he's not just bowing himself down, but he's bowing himself with trouble. He's limping as he does it. His hip is out of socket. Jacob has just wrestled with the Lord throughout the night. While the Lord allowed Jacob to prevail and receive a blessing, he also weakened him by dislocating his hip. And so I won't re-preach last week's sermon. I know that seems a little bit strange. They wrestled, what? What did you just say? So the Lord wrestled Jacob. Hold on a second, go back and look at that. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon. But God has just stripped Jacob of his self-sufficiency. He has reminded him that his trust must be entirely in the Lord's strength and blessing and not in his own schemes and devices. And now, exhausted. And weakened. remember he hasn't slept all night. And not, not just one of those nights, you know, where you, you lie in bed and you just can't fall asleep. And you're so frustrated and you get up, you know, maybe to use the restroom ten times and get a snack or whatever. Not just one of those nights. Not just a sleepless night. But I'm talking about a night of intense wrestling with no sleep. He is absolutely floored. He's exhausted and weakened and yet assured of the Lord's blessing. And so in this condition, he moves directly into the face of danger. I want to ask this question because this struck me as I was thinking through this passage. Have you ever considered that God may want to weaken you in preparation for your greatest trials and dangers? Let me say that again. That God may actually weaken you to Prepare you. This is quite contrary to to the world's way of thinking. This is quite contrary even to the kind of self-help sort of gospel message or the self-help Christian message that you oftentimes find and that we can don't have to drive very far, even from here, to find. But what we I think can get away, can come away from this with is that the Lord sometimes will prepare us for our greatest trial, not by puffing us up, not by strengthening us, but by weakening us. We oftentimes think, God is going to prepare me, God will give me what I need, God will strengthen me at the core, and God will leave me charging into battle, ready to fight those great fights of life. That's not what we see here in the life of Jacob. Quite contrary to that, God may actually choose to strip you of everything, lay you low, and weaken you in the dust to prepare you for that moment of trial. Why? Just the same with the Apostle Paul. Because in that moment of being stripped, in that state of being weakened, we are entirely dependent on the Lord. See, when we are puffed up in ourselves, when we've been given all of our resources and God's just prepared us, laid it all out there for us, and we can, we can put it all on and put it in our pack and just go right into battle, we're puffed up, self-sufficient. We're tempted to think that bag of resources really is our own doing. And all the muscle memory that we have is really our own doing. But that's not the case here Jacob knows that it's only by the Lord. This is how he prepares his people. And you know, this is is really contrary to the wisdom of the world. The world's wisdom is the absolute opposite of what we see God doing here with Jacob, and one of the ways that one of the, the themes that we pick up as we go throughout the Scripture is how God turns things on its head. God likes to to take things and invert them. Just about the birth, uh, we see this with the birth of Jesus. He's he's born. He's in a in a manger. Uh, who gets the message, the heavenly message of his birth? Shepherds. Who comes to see him? Foreigners. See that. The wisdom of the world is foolishness in the sight of God. And God works in a different kind of way. Well, what happens at this point is really nothing short of amazing. Jacob has been anticipating a massacre. Literally, he anticipates at the beginning, when these messengers come and tell him Esau's coming, he anticipates that Esau and these 400 men... Will literally come and kill everyone, all of the children as well. He's expecting, or had been expecting, a massacre, or at the very least, now maybe an intense battle, one in which God would fight for him and the blessing would stand, but there would still need to be a battle. Or maybe at the very least, he's expecting some harsh words. And a cold shoulder. But what happens here in this passage is amazing. And if you read this too quickly or you read this out of context and you haven't been building up to this point, you totally missed this. That what we read here is truly amazing. The exact opposite of everything we would expect to happen happens. What we find with Esau is eagerness and embrace. Look at verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Instead of hostility, Jacob receives the warmest of greetings filled with brotherly love. There's not a single trace here of any kind of hostility, jealousy, or any kind of grudge. What Jacob did to his brother in going in and deceiving his father to pretend to be his brother with those goat skins on his on his arms those go- that that goat fur there so his brother would his father would think it was him wearing his brother's jacket so that his father who was blind in his old age would smell the smell of esau and think it was esau all that deception taking away the blessing from esau it's as though it never happened here in the disposition of Esau and even more he expresses delight over Jacob's family asking who they are and greeting the various groups as they approach so this is not a a massacre even of the children this is a full on embrace of Jacob and his family as though these two brothers were the closest brothers that you had ever seen it is truly amazing So let's take a step back from this section of the text. What do we see here by way of observation on a high level as we look at the whole? Well, first, when we look at Jacob, we see faith mixed with frailty as we would expect and this is the case with all the people of God we must remember that as we relate to the people of God as elders within a church we must always remember that that's what we're going to find among the people of God is faith mixed with frailty that's what we find in our own hearts faith mixed with frailty as we graciously relate to one another, understanding the fact that we are going to witness each other sinning. We are going to see uh, offense against ourselves from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, This is a reality among the saints of God. We are not yet glorified. We are not yet perfected in Christ's likeness. And so we are moving through this life being conformed to the image of Christ, imperfect, And frail, yet being transformed all the while. And that is what we see here with Jacob. Verse 5, we see his faith. Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. This is faith. That expresses itself in gratitude and praise. Here we see Jacob's faith in the Lord is put on display. He trusts in God. He gives praise to God. He thanks God. He knows that everything he has, all of these family members, were a gift from God. So there's the faith. There's the strength. And yet, we see the same partiality and the same intense efforts to manipulate the situation in his favor. We see here that that Jacob takes his his servants and their children, these, these sons of his, these children who are his children. And they're in the front. If anyone's gonna get killed, they'll get killed first. And then Leah and her children, they'll get killed next. They are tier two. And then we get to tier one in the very back. If everybody else gets murdered, then these are the people who will get away. Two, Rachel and Joseph. And of course, here you're getting a little, uh, a little foretaste of what we're going to find later when Joseph is the favorite. Just imagine how these people in the family felt thinking, why are we in the front? Why? why wait, oh! realizing this partiality, realizing this favoritism. And of course, we know that this is part of the storyline that we're going to see later when Joseph is the favorite of his father. And his father gets him his beautiful coat. And the brothers hate him. It all really goes back even to this period. Rachel, his favorite wife, and Joseph, his favorite son. This is the same old Jacob in a way. And it is also the same old Jacob in these intense efforts to manipulate the situation. What is all this ridiculous bowing stuff? I mean, he's going over the top to make sure just in case. Okay, God, I know you're with me. But just in case, I'm going to make sure I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that everything turns out okay. So we see here, this is in some ways the same old Jacob and yet, It is a strengthened Jacob, a Jacob who trusts the Lord, but who is nonetheless, like us, imperfect in his walk with God. Second, when we look at the situation, we see the power, protection, and providence of the Lord in this story. By the way, I've said many times that as we go through these narratives of the patriarchs, we are piecing together our understanding of who the Lord is What is he like towards us? How does he he deal with us in our lives? What are his attributes? How is he inclined and disposed towards us when we sin? And so forth. What we see here are God's power, protection, and providence put on display. God has worked in Esau's heart. We don't know when. I mean, did Esau set out with 400 men to destroy Jacob and God came and, and, and spoke into his heart or massaged his heart or moved him? We don't know. Did Esau set out with 400 men so that when he finds Jacob, he will be able to protect Jacob and see him safely to a, a settling place, which the end of the story might suggest? We don't know. Did God work in Esau's heart right after it happened 20 years ago? And he's been fine ever since? We don't know. Did it happen two years ago? We don't know. But what we know is this. The Lord has done this work. John Calvin, reflecting on this, wrote, In this way, God showed that he has the hearts of men in his hands. Do you believe that about the Lord? God has the whole world in his hands, but not the will of an individual man. That doesn't make any sense. God has the whole world in his hands. And that penetrates down to the smallest, tiny speck of dust, an organism, and it penetrates to the core of the person. They're willing, they're thinking, and they're doing. It is God who holds Esau's heart In his hands, just as he held Pharaoh's heart in his hands. And we see here that this God who holds Esau's heart in his hands has has worked in that heart so as to kindly dispose it towards his brother. This is the Lord. God has done this, I think we could say here super abundantly. God is, God is showing us here that he, he doesn't just have the power to make things good and to make things right, that He has the power to make things good and right, abounding beyond what we would expect to happen. Ephesians chapter 3 comes to mind. Verse 20, Paul describes God as the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Maybe Jacob thought it would be okay, but but this okay, this much love, this much embrace, this much eagerness and warmth and kindness and love from his brother? Certainly, he would not have expected all of this. This is God working in a super abundant way. And we've seen that in our own lives. We ask God to do something in our lives and he does it, but he does it abounding. He does it multiplied. And we see that this God is one who responds to the prayers of his people. Look at chapter 32 verse verse 11. You just flip back a page and you'll read Jacob's prayer. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. We see here that God is answering Jacob's prayer. And finally, we see that this God is a God of reconciliation. God is presenting himself to us in this narrative, and he's showing himself as a God who can work in hearts, as a God who has power to protect, as a God who has the power to reconcile, a God who does by his nature reconcile. And isn't that what he does in the kingdom? Isn't that what God does in the church? Is that he reconciles, as we see in Ephesians, Jew and Gentile reconciled into one body, that God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and reconciled people to become brothers and sisters in Christ. God brings human beings together. Sin, Satan, the world, the flesh tear people apart. God is a reconciling God. So that's what we see first the greeting. Now we come secondly to the giving. Look at verses 8 to 11. 8 to 11. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. The issue in view here is the gift that Jacob had recently sent ahead for Esau. Remember, there were over 500 animals. It's incredible. In waves, sent to his brother Esau to appease him over 500 animals sent. And that is the issue in view here. So now Esau asks about this gift. And his question shows that this act of appeasement was unnecessary from the beginning. Verse 8, what do you mean by all this company that I met? You can see a smile on his face. You can see him almost laughing like, what are you, what are, what's all this stuff, all these camels? and these sheep, and the goats, and the donkeys, and, 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 all this. Why'd you send all of this, brother? Why? Esau presses against such a gift, saying that he has no need of it. And he encourages Jacob to take it back. But Jacob insists, saying in verses 10 to 11, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. The text then says that Esau accepted the offer and took the gift. And so that question is over. That's done. Esau has the gift. Jacob has persuaded his brother to keep it. Now, although this extravagant, Gift was originally an example of Jacob's scheming. Remember, he's, he's doing everything he can in his power to appease his brother. Although originally it was an example of that scheming, it will now serve, this is interesting, it will now serve as an expression of his humility and a recognition that he had wronged his brother by acting deceitfully all those years ago. And it'll do something else as well. It will serve as a constant reminder to Esau of this reconciliation. Think about that. Right now, at this point, on a human level, Esau is kindly disposed toward his brother. But what about a couple years from now? Well, what about maybe next month? What if his, he starts to maybe reminisce about the old days? Maybe that anger will rise again. What we find here is that this gift will serve as a constant reminder of this moment of brotherly love and reconciliation. Perhaps it will be used by God to perpetuate the peace in Esau's mind. And One thing I think we can consider from that is that God can fold our folly into his faithfulness. And what I mean is this. That there could be all kinds of instances in life where we do foolish things to try to go at it ourselves. And initially we can say that that act was unwise, unneeded, self-sufficient, self-reliant. But that God nonetheless can take that that foolish act and he can fold that into his faithful purposes in protecting us and keeping us and caring for us. And I think that's what this gift represents in the long run. Several major observations to make on this set of verses. First, Jacob sees the faithfulness of God in the face of Esau. He connects this horizontal encounter with that vertical encounter. As he looks upon the face of Esau with a big smile on it, he is reminded of the face of God that he had just wrestled with throughout the night. I think this tells us that, We are to see through our experiences to the God behind them. Jacob sees through the the, the mere human element here, and he sees in Esau's face the face of a faithful God. God is the one behind this reconciliation. Second, here again, we see that all praise is going to God. Verse 11. God has dealt graciously with me. What's interesting is in each of the three frames of this story, we see praise going to God. In the last section it's an altar, but in these two sections, Jacob affirms that God has graciously worked on his behalf. That God has graciously done something for him. And third, and this is this is neat. This is a neat observation. Third, we could say here that Jacob prevails. A repeated idea in this narrative is that Jacob's wishes prevail over those of Esau. Throughout this narrative, there are three instances where Esau wants something a certain way, and Jacob says, no, 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 no. And Jacob's wishes prevail over Esau's wishes. We're going to see that again in a moment. So now let's turn to the third point, which is the going. And this is the largest chunk of verses. Let's look at these verses 12 to 20. As we finish up this morning, the going. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Aram. and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So here, here we have the two brothers depart from this scene of reconciliation. And there are three major things that I want you to notice. As we go through this section. And here they are. First, separation, safety, and settlement. So first, separation. As I mentioned before, Jacob's wishes prevail throughout this narrative. And here Esau makes two proposals to Jacob. And in both cases, what Jacob wants to do wins the day. All throughout. So so there's, there's a kind of verbal prevailing here over his brother. Which is interesting given what the Lord told him. First, Esau proposes that they all depart together and go to Seir, where Esau is living. Jacob says the flocks and children will need more time to travel. So he says to Esau, why don't you go on ahead and... I don't want to drive the flocks too hard. I don't want to drive the children too hard. It's you and 400 men. Obviously, you can travel a little bit more quickly, a lot more quickly than I can. So why don't you go on ahead and I will meet you later in Seir. Well, here again, we see another example of Jacob's frailty. We've seen that with the favoritism. We've seen that with the scheming and, of course, now we see that with the deceiving. Jacob deceives his brother Esau. He has no intention of going to see her. He's not going to go where Esau is going. So instead of being open and honest, he chooses to lie in this moment. So see, we see once again, this is a, a man who loves the Lord, who knows the Lord, who trusts the Lord. But we see his frailty. We see his weakness. We see how feeble he is. Old habits die hard and require extra vigilance and battle on our part. Have you considered that about your own Christian life? Have you thought very much about the habits that you cultivated in Adam? When you were in Adam, before you were transformed to be in Christ And how some of those old habits that defined your in-atomness, that defined your fallenness, that that Christ has has made it to where those things no longer have dominion over you. As Paul says in, in Romans 6, that those things are not over you anymore, but yet they're constantly clawing at you. These old habits of life, these old ways of doing things. As Christians, we have a responsibility to be vigilant and watchful and careful about fighting these things in particular. This is part of our spiritual warfare. There are ways in which Satan has been working in our lives since we were born. And he continues to do that even after we are converted. These are battlefields. And this is one for Jacob. The battlefield of deceiving others. What are your battlefields? So Esau accepts Jacob's wishes. But then he offers to leave some men with him for safety. Let me leave some men behind with you, Jacob. And that way, you know, we'll go on ahead. But that way you've got some people with you. And they'll kind of lead you and protect you on to Seir, the place where Esau lives. And yet again, Jacob's wishes prevail. He tells Esau that, ah, there's no need for that, brother. You go on ahead with all 400 of your men and we'll be fine. I'll come to you. We'll come to you at Seir. The result of all of this is separation. Esau goes to Seir and Jacob settles in Succoth. Remember the oracle that the Lord gave to Rebekah while Esau and Jacob were still in her womb? The oracle that the Lord gave where he described that there would be conflict between these two sons and the nations that would come from them. Jacob knows that oracle. He knows that, that the two of them going to the same spot. Does it make any sense in the long run? There may be reconciliation now, but we know from the history of the Old Testament that Edom, the nation that came from Esau, and Israel, the nation that came from Israel, or Jacob, were at odds throughout the Old Testament. So Jacob does not need to go where Esau is going. But even more, Seir is not in the promised land. God had told Jacob that he would bring him back to this land, the land of Abraham and Isaac. So Jacob cannot leave now and head south away from the promised land. He is going into the land of promise. So, of course, separation is absolutely essential. And this reminds us of something else, too. I think this is really a small point, but I think it is applicable to us, is that the Lord may wish for us to be reconciled without being joined. Think about that for a moment. Sometimes we think... That that old person that we, that, not the old person, but that person that we used to uh, be close with back in the 11th grade or whatever, that we wronged them. And there may be a, a run-in in which there's reconciliation, but it is by no means the Lord's will that you be joined to that person. And this is one of, perhaps, perhaps one of the negative things of something like Facebook, just to throw it out there, is that there is this kind of perpetuation of needless relationships. No! Every relationship is needful. No, that's not the way it is in reality. That every relationship we would ever have in life must be perpetuated until death. That is not necessary. It's certainly not necessary to spend your day scrolling through their pictures. But we consider that this this sense of this need to, 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 to maybe feel like if we've, if we've, made a, a wrong right, if we've reached out to someone and reconciled and, and, and healed that relationship, that does not necessarily mean that we go and be with them and hang out with them and spend lots of time with them. There may just be the need to reconcile and go our separate ways. That's okay. That's okay in life. Second, we, and third, we see safety and settlement. As we finish We see separation here, but we also see safety and settlement. Verse 18, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. This this really is an amazing chapter. When you consider all that's packed in here in terms of the faithfulness of God. Here he is meeting his brother, and his brother embraces him and kisses him. There's absolute, total reconciliation. And where is Jacob at the end of the narrative? After leaving homeless with nothing, after being deceived and mistreated by his uncle, after being pursued by his uncle and now facing his brother, and now we read something like this. This is God. This is the faithfulness of God. He arrives safely in the land with possession in the land. It's amazing. The faithfulness of God never fails. We might be confused about how he ought to work with us, but his faithfulness never fails. Jacob has now entered into the promised land safely. And here in the land of promise, he settles and gains property. And it's important to remember that Shechem was the first stop. Now, this is, this is fascinating. Shechem was the very first stop as Abraham left Mesopotamia. God called him out of Mesopotamia to come to the land that he would show him. And the very first stop is this same spot. It's Shechem, where Abraham builds an altar to the Lord. And here we read, in the same way, verse 20, there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. God, the God of of Israel, Now, there is a new altar here, and it gives testimony to years and years and years, hundreds of years of God's faithfulness to the patriarchs. And now, it is not just calling upon the Lord in a general way, but he calls upon the Lord as the God of Israel. Remember, Jacob prayed as God let him out. God appeared to him with the angels and all of that on his way to Mesopotamia. He said, I will worship him and he will be my God. And here we see El Elohe Israel. Jacob worships the Lord as his God, the God who has protected him, the God who has appeared to him, the God who has changed his name, and the God who will be faithful to his descendants. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness demonstrated all throughout your word. We thank you for a passage like this, which puts your faithfulness on such display. How we see your control over Esau's heart. How we see your faithfulness in transforming Jacob and being patient with him and his sin. We see your providence We see you protecting your promises made even to Adam and Eve through Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. We see a testimony to you in this altar. Lord, as we gather here this morning, it is a testimony to your faithfulness to us as your people are your temple. That there is no place. There's no place to which we go and remember the Lord is our God. We are the temple of the living God. We gather this morning as the temple and we praise you, Father, that you have been faithful to us in so many areas of our lives. We ask that you would sustain us, that you would continue to keep us close to you and that we would trust you, God, even when we are stripped of all our strength, even when life seems hopeless and empty and dark, that we would trust in the Lord our God. You are the God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the same God, and we will be with you forever. Thank you for these promises through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name, amen.